The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC is available online at overlandpark.cc. Welcome to OPCC. Welcome to those of you online. If you have your Bibles, man, open up to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. If you're, if you're using a bulletin today, okay, right there, um, as you're following along in your bulletin, it has the scripture, and so it says, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1, after the first point, you need to go to where it says declares, and it has a colon, and take an ink pen or a pencil, and everything after the colon, mark it out. That's a misprint. That's out of my notes from the previous week, and it made it in there, okay? So that's not biblical. That's just something I wrote, all right? <laughs> I want you to know that as we get in there, and you're like, wait, I don't see this part about the cedars, and this is about that. That's not here. It's because it's not there, all right? So that was a misprint. So last week, um, man, we, we learned about the rejection of the Messiah and how the old covenant was revoked, and so that... Zechariah had to act out this part where he had a staff called favor and a staff called union. And, and God told him in front of the people to break those two things. That he was breaking the favor and the union um, that he had between his people. He was breaking that. And we learned that that was making way for the new covenant. And that's why on the night that Jesus was betrayed, um, he instituted the new covenant. And so we see that they rejected the Messiah as he came in. They would not receive him. And so the old covenant was broken and it made way for the new covenant. And so we saw the week before that, as I explained that last week's prophecy was a, it was like one of the darkest prophetic words that Israel had ever received. It was, it was bad, man. It's just, it's really discouraging if you hear that about um, the nation of Israel as God's chosen people. And he's saying, you know, you didn't accept me, you rejected me, so I'm rejecting you as my chosen people. And the covenant was revoked. And so before that, the week before that, if you remember, man, it took us a long time to work through this whole word that he gave us about um, the two different kings. And remember, we learned about Alexander the Great. He conquered the world by shedding the blood of others. But this second king would conquer the world by shedding his own blood. And as he did that, it made way for all these promises, man, that are available to us as, as followers of Jesus. And so um, it was a beautiful passage of Scripture. Well, this week, um, we begin what is known as the last oracle. And so in the last few chapters of Zechariah, we sort of have there in the first section, we have all of these visions that come in one night. And then we get toward the end and we have these oracles. And so we have this one oracle that we spent the last few weeks going through. And it's almost like you could perceive the oracle as being a message, uh, a sermon, something that God gave Zechariah and he acted out. And, and then we get to the last oracle. And so there were these two times that the word came to the prophet Zechariah. And so today we start on the last oracle uh, of, of the Zechariah's prophecy. And so what I want to do is, um, as we look at this prophecy, what's interesting about this one is that the last oracle that we looked at of the last two, then what happens is it's about the dark darkness of what's going to fall on Israel 
and the rejection of the Messiah and the Messiah rejecting them. Which really, under the New Covenant, it, he says, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reach out to a people that are not mine. And that's what happens when the Gentile population comes into the kingdom of God. Um, we see that happening in the book of Acts. And so it, it goes beyond just this one people group of the Jews. And now it's, it's open to all. And that's why you read about these things when Peter and, and the early Jewish leaders of the church, uh, they were like, man, these Gentiles are getting saved. What do we do with this? We've been taught all our lives that they're unclean people. But they're receiving the same spirit. And that's the covenant making its way. And those beautiful, precious promises being fulfilled in the Gentiles. And they're coming into um, the new Israel, if you will. And so uh, today, as we look at this uh, oracle, what it teaches us is how all this is going to come into effect. And so last week was the old covenant is revoked. There will be a new covenant. And then how is that new covenant entered into? And so it's a very important passage of Scripture in Old Testament prophecy that is written 500 years before Jesus shows up on the planet. And so what we're going to do is we're going to work through uh, chapter 12, 1 through chapter 13, 1. Okay, so only, what I don't know, 12 or 15 verses in total. And so you go, well, why are you splitting the chapters up? You have to understand that the chapters of the Bible were, they were added later, okay? They're just a way for us to be able to do what we're doing. And I can say, hey, turn to Zechariah chapter whatever so you can get to the same place of teaching. And so this is one, one sermon or one word that's coming uh, to the prophet uh, uh, Zechariah in this oracle. So let's just work through it. And then I'm going to kind of, after I work through it, I'm going to give you uh, some takeaways. I'm going to do a little, a bit of explanation of the text and some interpretation and tell you um, kind of what, where the Lord has me in this text and what I believe it's teaching. It says, this is the word of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the spirit of man within him. He declares, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. Now, what you're going to find fascinating is how many times it says that day, that day, on that day, on that day. And so he's looking forward like, we're looking back on what Zechariah was writing. Zechariah was looking forward on, uh, to something that was coming. And he says, On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. <clears throat> all who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day, I will strike every horse with panic, and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over the house of Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nations. Then the leaders of Judah will say in their hearts, the people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. On that day, I will make the leaders of Judah like a firepot in a woodpile, like a flaming torch among sheaves. 
And they will consume right and left all the surrounding peoples. But Jerusalem will remain intact or in her place. And the Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first, so that the honor of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. Okay, so like, just prophecy, man, that there's going to be a lot of stuff coming against Jerusalem. But in the midst of all of that, that, that attack upon Jerusalem, God is saying, I'm working there in the midst of it. <clears throat> now watch this. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. Now, when we read these things, guys, we're reading them in light of having all of the New Testament. And so we're looking back, right? When, when, when Zechariah wrote this, there's no Jesus. There's no New Testament. There's no church. There's just Judaism. There's just the law. There's just the old covenant. And so we read it and we kind of have an understanding, man, that word grace and supplication. We're like, yeah, man, I love me some grace. I love me some supplication, right? Well, they didn't understand it like you and I understand it. They didn't understand what it means to be possessed by the Holy Spirit because that only happened to particular people. They were led by the fire of God externally. We are led by the fire of God internally. He dwells in us. He dwelt in the Ark of the Covenant for them. And so sometimes he would come over with a special anointing for a special person like maybe King David, and there would be a special anointing on his life. But it wasn't that way for everyone. And so whenever we read these words, and he says, and I will, that's, a, that's, like, that's, that's looking into the future, what God will do. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Now, who do they look on? They look on me, he says. And man, the Jewish um, scholars of the, uh, that, that were, they would try to make interpretations on this still to this day. They get really messed up there because they're like, man, how can you pierce God? God is like, you can't pierce God. And so they have trouble with it. It really trips them up as they're trying to make an interpretation on this um, Old Testament prophecy that the Jewish people still today have high value in the prophet Zechariah, okay? And so they read this and they get a little tripped up there because it's saying that they will pierce me. That's God. <clears throat> That's God speaking. So God's saying they will pierce me, the one they have, uh, uh, and they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. See, that's not hard for us to understand because we accept the incarnation of God in flesh in Jesus. The way he's pierced is he becomes living flesh. Now he is, has the ability to be pierced. 
And so it says they will mourn for uh, uh, me as one mourns and grieves for an only son. That's deep grief, man. Like if you think about all the grief, like sometimes we lose a friend or we lose a mom or we lose a dad. And, and, and so when you lose a friend, I mean, we grieve. Uh, but time goes on and we don't grieve as, as much anymore, right? When you lose a parent, like I've lost my dad. You grieve differently than when you lose a grandparent or when you lose a friend. You grieve longer. But then it, it seems to subside. I know nothing of losing a child, and I never want to know anything of it. But people will tell you that it is unlike any grief you could ever experience. You just grieve and grieve and grieve. And it, 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 it gets easier, they say, but, but it's a grief that you carry on for the rest of your life. And so God is saying through the prophet Zechariah, they will look on me and they will grieve like that. They will look on the one they have pierced and they will grieve as one grieves for the loss of an only child. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great, like the weeping of Hadad Rahman in the plain of Megiddo. What is that? Well, remember when we were walking through Amos last spring and we learned about King Josiah. He was a king that became king at eight years old and God used him to do amazing things. And he died because of the sins of the people. And damnation grieved. And so it's making a comparison when there was national grief to them. And it's, that's the, it's, it's kind of saying, man, they will grieve even greater than when they grieved when King Josiah died. The land, it says, will mourn, each clan by itself, with their wives by themselves. The clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, the clan of Shammai and their wives, and all the rest of the clans and their wives. You see, man, this is something that's really personal. And then we read verse 1 of chapter 13. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. It's a fascinating passage of Scripture. Prophesied 500 years before Jesus ever touched the planet, the prophet Zechariah writes these words. And so here's the deal. Now, I got to be real careful here, or we will get caught down in a rabbit hole, and we won't be out of here until noon, okay? So I'm going to say a few things that you're going to want a little bit more of, and it's going to frustrate you, but I'm going to try to say it as simply as I can to, to give you an idea of where I come from on interpretation. Because when it comes to eschatology, people believe a lot of different things. You go, whoa, 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 bro, what is eschatology? Okay, that's just the study of the end. What, how all of the prophecy works out in the end that's still ahead of us, the end times. And so there are some, when they read and they study prophecy, they, they read about the things about Israel and they, they make an interpretation that is literal and physical about Israel, okay? So they see it as pertaining to the land of Israel, the nation of Israel, what's going to happen with the people of Israel, the actual Jewish people, okay? That, 
And again, I'm not going to go way deep into this, but that tends to be, and, and the Lord may be giving us freedom and paving the way for where we're headed this spring. Amen? I hope so. But that's premillennial thought. It can even be, uh, uh, and, and, there, and it works itself out in different ways about the tribulation and all of these things, but that's how the uh, premillennialists would view things. And then you have amillennialism. And amillennialism is they look at the apocalyptic literature and interpret things more uh, along the lines of spiritualized. And so when it refers to the nation of Israel, they make an interpretation and say that's the new Jerusalem. That's the church. That's, the, that's spiritual Israel. So in a sense, if you belong to Christ, you are a part of of the new Israel, the new Jerusalem. That's why Paul says, you are grafted in. And so the amillennialist approach, approaches end time thinking, and they say, listen, this is, most of this is about what's happening in the church, and it doesn't really apply to Israel nationally, because that covenant has been revoked, okay? And so then there's another school of thought that's it's postmillennial, and it would be similar to the two. And so he said, well, what are you, Jimmy? <laughs> I'm still working it out, okay? And I have been for, since I answered the call to preach. But the Lord has me in a place, and he's been teaching me some things, and some of the things that I'm going to share with you are interpretations by Jimmy Holbrook, okay? They're not things that I've read that I, that I feel the Lord is confirming for me. But I don't believe it's either or. I believe it's both and. I believe... So when we look at the scripture, we see these things like David is a type of Christ. And we call that typology. And so we can look at David's life and we can see how he was used to um, save Israel. He uh, had all these, like, for instance, David is a type of Christ in this way. When he slays Goliath, he is slaying an enemy that no one else could slay. And so nobody else could match this enemy. It seems to be that he's this lowly shepherd boy, and she should have no business slaying a giant. But he slays the giant just as Christ slays the enemy, the devil, and he takes away the power of death, and he offers salvation to all. So he serves as typology, a type of Christ. He's not Christ. But the things that miraculously happened in his life, they point forward to what Christ would do supernaturally to set us free as captives from sin. And so we would say that's typology, okay? They're, the same thing happens with Moses and a lot of different characters in the Bible. And so what I'm seeing and the Lord is teaching me is that, that I believe there's typology in prophecy. And by that, I don't mean that... that it's a type of prophecy. So God prophesies, this is what's going to happen to the nation of Israel. And as the church, during the church age, us, he gives us a type of the fulfillment and showing how victorious we are is what he's going to do with Israel at the very end. And so we see a type of fulfillment in the prophecy through what God is doing as he works through the church. So ultimately, when we get to the end 
and, and before the return of Christ and we had this great battle, all of the great and precious promises that exist, as Paul says, in heavenly places, we can access spiritually. But God is painting a picture through um, the, the, the prophetic word of how these things will physically happen in the future. So I don't think it's all spiritual, and I don't think it's all physical. I think it's both, okay? And so I don't know what that makes me, but I'm a follower of Jesus before I'm a follower of a system of thought. And as I study the Word, I see that I'm not going to let a system dictate to me what it is that I believe the Word is teaching. And I see both of these things. And I see that all over Scripture. I don't think it's uncommon for, to do that because sometimes we get hung up on the sovereignty of God. And we say, well, God knows everything. And, and so sometimes we say, man, well, if God knows everything, then how can man have a free will? Well, God is just so sovereign that he can create that. And so all I could rest on and say, man, it's not either or. It's not either God is sovereign and man has no free will or man has free will and God is not sovereign. I'm saying, man, God is sovereign and man has free will. And I can't wrap my mind around that. But God doesn't ask me to wrap my mind around it. He just teaches me that it's there. I see both of these, okay? And so when I approach prophecy, that's what I see happening. So as I read through, as, I, as we study this chapter and I begin to unpack these verses, there is in one sense that a lot of this is going to happen in, future, uh, in the future for Israel, and the church will be part of that because we are already part of Israel, okay? As a matter of fact, in one sense, it, it sort of works... Uh, we were working on the proje projectors yesterday, and the, the, the guys, were they kept throwing around this term. They couldn't get this new projector to work to put on the back. So doesn't it look great, man? Yeah, man, the guys worked hard on that. Okay, and so, but they said, it's bi-directional. It'll go both ways, right? And so Israel, before any of the things that are promised that are going, that they can actually happen, they have to come into the church, because what is the church? The church is just the body of Christ. And so they have to get saved just like a Gentile has to get saved or a Jew today gets saved. So there will be a, re there will be a great revival among the Jews that happens in the future. And so, and I say, so I'm, I'm done with that rabbit hole. Are you tracking with me or are you going, oh my goodness? Come on, y'all got it? You good? Everybody good? Yeah. All right. So here's the takeaways because I kind of got to explain that before I give you the takeaways. Here's the first thing the Lord wants us to take away from this passage. And that is the Lord sustains. He sustains. In verse 1 it says, The word of the Lord concerning Israel. That would be us because we're the new Israel. And that would be also the people of God. The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the human spirit within a person. It goes all the way back to the Genesis story. That's what God did. He laid out the heavens and the earth, and he created and breathed life into the first human. What you have to understand, and this is really cool, is none of these verbs are past tense. They are all, what it's saying is he continually stretches. He continually holds. He continually is the one who puts the spirit within a person. That's why I'm so anti-abortion. It's because the, the mother and the father are a vehicle with, through which God chooses to bring a new soul into, into humanity. Okay? 
And so he, he chooses to make a body through a man and a woman, but he makes the soul. Okay? And so he puts the soul in the womb, in that body. He is the creator of, of the soul. And so when we abort a baby, we are, we are literally aborting a soul that was created by the creator of the universe. And so like, we're like, whoa, man, that, that we, like, we can't be pro-choice and be Christian. I don't, you can't be, bro. You can't. Like, there's just no way because God is the author of life. And so we look at that and we go, that's why, is because he's the one holding it all together. And so what this teaches us is that, that, that God did not create the world and wind it up with a ticker on it, put it out there, and walk away. No. No, God, he keeps it wound. As a matter of fact, he, it's spinning like the earth is spinning on its axis right now. And as it's spinning on its axis, like if it tilted one degree or the other, then what could happen, man, is, is the whole planet could freeze instantly. And we, we learned that recently, right? Or if it, if it, tw- tints, <laughs> it, it tilts the other way, then, then the whole planet all, automatically could, um, it could, it could uh, burn up, right? And so God, like, it's almost as if God is like spinning the globe on his finger like a person with a basketball. He keeps it there. He steadies it. He's sustaining it. And he's the one breathing life into each person. And so he is stretching. He is holding. He is forming. What is he telling us? He's telling us he is active in the world. He's not standing away watching the world. He's active in it. That's why he calls on us to pray. He calls on us to be the people that he wants us to be. Okay, and so then we learn the Lord sustains. And the second thing is, the Lord protects his covenant people. Now look at verse 2. Verse 2, he says um, that he will make Jerusalem a cup that sends all surrounding peoples reeling. And so he makes Jerusalem a cup that sends their enemies reeling. What does that mean? Okay, so a cup is something people drink from. And so as people look at Jerusalem, they want to drink from all that it has and take advantage of it. But when they try that, they become reeling. It just sends them out of control. And so as the church, like what this is teaching us, is that as the church, man, um, things can come against it. But God will come and he will send the people who come against it reeling. Verse 3 says, an immovable rock that injures those who try to move it. So as a person tries to move the rock, and you remember Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right? And so upon this rock I will build my church. And he says, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock that injures those who try to move it. The church, I don't know who said this, okay, but it's not original with me. The church is an anvil that has broken many hammers. People trying to destroy the church and the hammer gets broken. The church is not going anywhere until God says it will. And so that's what we see. It's like there's protection in this. He says, I will watch over mine and blind her enemies. I will watch over mine and blind her enemies. Um, So when all of this begins to happen, verse 5 says the covenant people, look at verse 5. On that day, I will make the leaders of Judah like a fire pot. No, no, no. 
Verse, yeah, verse five. Then the leaders of Judah will say in their hearts, the people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. And so the covenant people recognize the strength that they possess is the Lord. And what does the disciples say as they start? It is the Lord, man. And when the Lord shows up, that's what we like to say around the church. What, how did this happen? It is the Lord, man. We recognize the power of the Lord working in our midst as he's protecting us and working out and causing, like people even coming against us, they end up getting blinded in their confusion. Verse 6 says his leaders become a consuming force. Like, like uh, They're like a torch among sheaves and they consume right and left. I'm reminded of, of Stephen. Remember, he was a man filled with Holy Spirit. He was the first Christian to be martyred for believing in Jesus. And he's preaching to the Pharisees. He's preaching to the Jewish guys. And man, uh, they're telling him that he's out of his mind, and he just keeps preaching Jesus. And they start shrieking and hollering at him. And he, he just keeps consuming them, even to the point that, that they start... Um, throwing rocks at him and they start trying to they're going to stone him because they think he's blaspheming and he consumes them by saying I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the father and as he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the father they're still throwing rocks at him and he's still consuming everything they're trying to destroy and he even says that he prays that that, that, that they are forgiven for what happens and Paul's sitting there watching all of this. He saw at the time giving the orders, and it consumed even so much. Don't think for a minute that Paul, for the rest of his life, didn't think about the look on Stephen's face as a leader in the church who was consuming everything he stood for. And ultimately, Jesus um, meets Paul on the road to Damascus, calls him into the kingdom, and then Paul becomes a consumer. And they, they end up killing Paul, too. But Paul lives on as I talk about him today thousands of years later his leaders are consuming it doesn't matter how much they try to destroy he says man my covenant people will have leadership in the midst of it that it doesn't matter what hell throws at it it can't stand against it it's on the offensive it's conquering territory people are coming into the kingdom they're meeting Jesus their sins are getting forgiven and they're just consuming throughout history and then it says in verse 8 or seven, it says he is, he's no respecter of persons. You say, how do you get that? Well, he says, I'm going to come, and when I do this, I will do it and offer this protection in Judah before I do it in Jerusalem. And Judah was the weaker, okay? They were the surrounding areas. And so what God is seeing through this is that he is no respecter of persons. He doesn't look for the mighty. He doesn't look for the wealthy. He doesn't look for the gifted. He looks for weak people, and he will start with weak people, and he will use weak people and stronger and more gifted people. But he doesn't care. He's just looking for people that he can enter into covenant with. And when he does, they will become fierce warriors like David. And then it says the Lord shields and he turns them into the, those great warriors like the house of David will be like the house of God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And so he takes the weak things of this world and he confounds the wisdom of this world and he makes them into mighty warriors. That's why he chose fishermen and tax collectors when he chose his first apostles. And so we look at this and we go, man, the Lord protects his covenant people. That's what is being taught there. And, and so in the future, there will be covenant people that come in to the kingdom, and God will do this even physically in the future for how it works itself out in Israel. But right now, that's us. 
That's what he's saying about us. Like we are spiritual Israel. And he's saying, this is what I will do for my people. That's why the Bible says no enemy, no weapon can be formed against me and prosper. Why? Because I'm in covenant with God and he's promised that anything that tries to come against me, he will blind and confound it as long as I'm walking in obedience. That's why Jesus says, don't worry about all these things on the periphery of your life. Seek first the kingdom of Christ, and I'll take care of the periphery. If you try to take care of the periphery, then then try to seek the kingdom of Christ. You don't have the protection that I'm talking about. That's why I'm trying to make disciples that make disciples, because when you walk in that obedience, you are seeking the kingdom of Christ first, and all the periphery will be taken care of. When you worry about all the things that you have to do before you will worry about making a disciple, that it makes a disciple do not count on the blessing of God friend you're walking in disobedience and rebellion you say how can you say that because Matthew chapter 28 teaches me very plainly that the last words of Christ before he ascended his famous last words to all of his disciples was go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations of the earth and baptize them in the name of the Father the Son the Holy Spirit and when you catch a hold of that God will start taking care of the things around you but if you ignore it you can't say I'm claiming the promises of God on what obedience do you claim that promise you can't you can't. You say, like, like we, we, because the promises and the blessings of God come as we walk in obedience, the fruit is produced in our life. And so we see, man, how will this be done? How will this be done? How will the covenant happen? Well, now we go to verse 1 of chapter 13. Watch what happens. On that day, a, a fountain will be open to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Now, verse 10, if we go back to chapter 12, verse 10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication." So a fountain is open, but prior to the fountain talked about, a spirit of grace and supplication is described in verse 10. This word grace here, when you interpret it in the context, it means um, repentance for a murder committed. So God will pour out in grace repentance For a murder that was committed, and supplication means prayer. And so they will call on God in repentance for a murder that was committed. They will look on, it says, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. They will look on the one they have pierced, and what will they do? They will mourn individually. That's why he goes by from the house of David to the clan, and he ends with the wife. Every time, a clan and a wife. A clan down to the wife. What does that mean? It means every person individually will have an experience if they are in covenant with me where they mourn for the one they have murdered. That's what it's teaching. And so, so like we look at this and, and, and it says, um, 
Like when we, when we look at Jesus on the cross of Calvary, there was this thing like they would, when a person was crucified, the Romans had perfected this crucifixion, this art of execution. And so a person didn't bleed to death, they died by asphyxiation. And so they would suspend them and slightly bend their knees like this and put a little platform under their feet before they nailed them to the cross. And so they were turned this way and this way. And then they would pierce and suspend them from their arms. And in order to breathe, they had to pull up on their arms to inhale. And then they had to suspend and put down on their feet to exhale. And this would go on for hours. It was an agonizing death. But in any time that they wanted to, uh, to, to make the death happen quicker, they would practice crucifracture. And crucifracture is when a Roman guard would come up to the cross and he would take a big club and he would hit the victim at his knees, breaking his knees, all of his weight suspending on his arms, and within a matter of a minute or two, he would die. Okay? And so whenever all of these events started happening around the crucifixion and, 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 and like the storm and the earthquake and all that stuff, they were all freaking out. The Roman guard goes up to the thief on the cross and he breaks his knees. He goes up to the other one and he breaks his knees. He comes up to Jesus and he says, hey, he's already dead. And you know what they do? Like it's uncommon. It's uncommon. They normally would break the victim's legs. He says, he's already dead. And the Roman looks at him and throws him his spear. A Roman, not a Jew. Not somebody a part of the church. The church didn't exist. An outside independent source throws his spear, thrusts it in the side of Jesus, pulls it out, and blood and water flows from his side. And the man who was standing there as a friend was John the Apostle. And he says this about it. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and as another Scripture says, they will look on the one they pierced. John's reading through Zechariah one day, and he's like, oh, I was standing there when it happened. He literally fulfilled this prophecy that was written 500 years before, just like he fulfilled the prophecy that um, when he rode into the town on, donkey, on the donkey, man, these guys had to be blown away when they were reading through the book of Zechariah for the first time. And he's saying, I saw it. And then at that point in time, the fountain was opened. Okay, so this fountain that is talked about is opened in that point in time. Now, in the future, there will be a recognition of Jesus as king by the nation of the Jews. And so we look and we go, man, how do we know when anything, end times are starting to happen? When, if you see a revival, like a Christian revival among the Jewish nation of Israel, bros, you better be paying attention, all right? That's why it's so incredible that for all this time after they were, after they were brought back from captivity in, in Babylon, they were exiled and then they were brought back, then these prophecies in these last three chapters start happening. God says to them, when the covenant is revoked, you'll be scattered again. And at the time of the Roman war, that's what happened. 
and then they went on for centuries without being in their homeland. And then in 1948, just this last century, they all moved back. What? That's what's going on. And you, you, so, the, the, so like, like we look at that and we go, man, something is happening. Something significant is happening in the prophetic word of God. And, and, and so we see that fulfillment, we could be on the doorstep of a great revival happening among the Jews. And so we look, we go, man, a fountain is open. And so in the future, there's coming a time where there will be a tremendous Christian revival among the Jewish, uh, the Jewish people and they will recognize Jesus as Messiah. And they will proclaim Jesus is the Messiah, which they have never done. They have not, they've rejected him. Right now, this prophecy is being fulfilled when a person recognizes Jesus as Messiah. So when I recognized Jesus as Messiah, this prophecy was fulfilled as I was cleansed by the fountain that was opened up on that day. And so here's the, here's the final takeaway. To be in covenant with God you must plunge beneath the fountain. You cannot get into covenant relationship with God by going to church. You cannot get in covenant relationship with God by um, giving money. The only way to get into a covenant relationship with God is to plunge beneath the fountain that was open. And it is a solitary experience. It's done alone, even in a crowd. That's why Zechariah is told to write this from the clan down to the wife. Individually, they will go and they will mourn over the one they have pierced. And so I'm going to give you an illustration of what I think this looks like. And it, it's like, it's not a pretty picture, <laughs> but as a bow hunter, I started bow hunting when I was 31. So for the last 20 years, I've been bow hunting. And I've been fortunate enough to harvest some good, solid bucks. Amen? Yeah, man. <laughs> and so with bow hunting, like you, you're going to be close when it all goes down. You have to be stealthy. Most of the whitetails that I have harvested have been within 20 to 30 yards. Most, I mean, I've had them even as close as 10 yards when I harvested them. And so without exception, like without exception, when I release the arrow, usually there are other deer around, especially if I'm hunting on the edge of a, a food source. There, there could be as many, like the, the, the deer I harvested this year, there were probably 25 deer in the field. And he was one of the last ones to show. And so when you target a mature one, they're usually the last one to come out. And so, like, I, there he is. And I finally managed to draw back. And I click my release. And it's silent because I shoot a Matthews. <laughs> Catch me if you can. And smack. And he kicks and he runs from the direction he went. And all of the other deer, if they're right there by him when it goes down, they may run 20 yards and then they look at him. And then the deer across the field will look at him like, what's wrong with that, bro? And he disappears inside the timber. He wants to go and be alone to die. And when God 
pours out grace and supplication on your life, He will hit you with an arrow in the heart. And you will want nothing but to be in solitude with Him and mourn over your sin that killed Him on the cross. The difference is, with God, the arrow that kills is the arrow that gives life. Like if I could go to that buck after I had harvested him, and, and I love these animals, right? Like it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an incredible relationship. But if I could go to him afterwards, and I miraculously could lay hands on him and pray over him and return life back to him. And he got up and he went back into that field. There are things that would happen. One, he would no longer be afraid of me because he would know I just gave him life. He would be a different deer. And he would go out back into that field that he had just come off of. And he would look at all of them deer. And he might interact with them. But he would be different than all of the rest of those deer. Because he had been dead, but now he was alive. And his experience would be nothing like all of the other experiences that the other deer are having. Because uh, he, even though he looks like a deer, and he eats like a deer, and he walks like a deer, and he smells like a deer... He's a deer that died to himself and was given new life. And that makes him different. And so, with God, the arrow that kills is the arrow that heals. And you go alone. And you die to yourself. And so, like, even in a crowd like today, if God wears back that divine bow, and he aims an arrow of grace, remember, that grace described here is repentance over one that has been murdered and he releases it and it hits your heart he's inviting you to make supplication and go to a solitary place and repent of your sins even still today as i think about my sins i have sorrow over them but my sorrow has been turned into joy because i've gone to that solitary place i've repented of my sins and that fountain that is flowing has cleansed me that's what verse 1 says and so the big idea is the hand that causes the pain can cure it that's the gospel and so like like when we, when we put all this together, like it doesn't necessarily mean, oh, you're saying that if I want to be in covenant with Jesus, I got to go somewhere and by myself and cry. No, I'm saying that if God pierces your heart with grace and supplication, it can happen right here in this room right now in this moment. It did for me. I mean, he hit me, man. And when he hit me, I was like, oh, my gosh, you love me this much, Lord. And he, all he would say is, I love you more, more than you can even fathom. And the old hymn says it best. It says, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood Lose all their guilty stains Lose all their guilty stains Lose 
lose all their guilty stains and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains listen to this one the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day and there may i though vile as he wash all my sins away wash all my sins away wash all my sins away and there may i though vile as he wash all my sins away have you plunged have you taken that plunge had the divine archer hit you in the heart because when he does man that's what it means to walk in covenant that's what it means to be born again that's what it means to be a part of the new Jerusalem. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at www.overlandpark.cc.